Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. So this is the title of today's lesson, Exit to Enter. Before we get into it and what that means, we are going to review last week's lesson. So last week we were in John chapter 6. The chapter gives account of the miracles that Jesus performed, having taken five loaves and two fish. And with those five loaves and two fish, he feeds 5,000 men. And I don't think that's including uh, women and children. But he feeds 5,000 men. He splits the food. This is the miracle of the multiplication of food. And so at the end of it, he has 12 baskets full of loaves still left over at the end of the event. The amazed crowd would have taken Jesus by force to make him a king, but Jesus made an exit from the scene. The people didn't give up. They went on a search for Jesus. After a number of failed leads, they finally catch up with Jesus the next day. Jesus tells them that they're not seeking him for his miracles, but to be fed. In some similar way, it might be like a billionaire or a millionaire saying, you're not here for my glowing personality, you're here for the free money. Over the course of the unfolding conversation between Jesus and the crowd, Jesus says to them, don't worry about the bread, which you'll eat and be hungry again. I am the eternal bread. Eat me, Jesus says. Not, don't worry about their bread. Eat me. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Eat me. And it was definitely odd to them. Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms, not literal. The message was, through me is eternal life. At that point, something had shifted in the crowd. Their enthusiasm dried up. They were there to have their stomachs fed. They could not wrap their mind around the greater spiritual food that was being offered them. They couldn't see that the key to eternal life was right in front of them. And so, as the crowd turned away, so did many of the disciples, all except for the main 12 disciples. And Christ presents a question to them, will you go away also? Peter answers, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. The message invited us to ask ourselves, are you just following God for bread? Meaning, the things that he gives you, is that what we're following for? Are we following him for just the things that he gives us? And so we were invited to ask that question. At the end of it, we were invited to esteem Christ more than the gifts he gives. Christ himself is the ultimate gift. The gift that he gives, the many gifts, the many blessings, they are wonderful. And it's good to appreciate those things. But we don't appreciate those things and forget about the person who's actually given it to us, right? And we do that every day. It's so interesting that when you encounter people who have a hardness in their heart towards God, they mention all the things that are wrong with the world. And I remember one time in one video, the person who was witnessing asked the question, well, what about the sun? What about the oxygen? What about the food you eat? When you eat that food, do you ever stop and thank God for the taste buds that you have, right? But no, we don't go there when we get hard in our heart towards God. We go to everything that is wrong. Isn't that interesting? So God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
we went over three points relating to being satisfied in God. One, our time and money reflect our priorities. If you spend a whole lot of time in front of a television watching sports, you're a big sports fan, for example. We were invited to evaluate whether our time and money reveal Christ as our priority. Point two, we would be able to live in unity with those around us. When things are big, Christ is small. When Christ is big, things are small. A focus on Christ shrinks the importance of all those smaller matters we could so easily get distracted into arguing about. Point three, we would be able to fight sin with greater power. Pastor David cited a quote, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. The more your desire for God grows, the more your desire for sin diminishes. And so it's this third point in particular that will share a lot in common with our message today. And again, to hammer that through, the quote is, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of superior satisfaction in God. When it comes to overcoming sin, it is not a matter, and David went over this quite beautifully in the last message, it's not simply a matter of, oh, I'm done with that. Oh, I shouldn't do that, so I'm stopping right now. And you just fold your arms, and then you just stop. It's usually not that easy with a lot of things, particularly when habits have set in, when habits of sin have set in. And you have to actually work to break those habits, right? And we're not at it alone. We have the Holy Spirit with us in the process of doing it. If we know Christ, we have the Holy Spirit with us. And so what do we do? To break those patterns of sin, well, one, we want to build up new patterns. When you break down old patterns, you actually, at the same time, replace those patterns, those habitual patterns, with other patterns, right? And we want to replace the negative patterns with more positive patterns. And this is something that, in different ways, I've actually observed under a microscope in the way that our brain works. As we are breaking down old memory patterns, they start to shrivel up. They start to loosen, they start to dissolve, and in their place, something else is erected. And we want that thing that is built up in the place of those negative thoughts not to be another negative habit, but to be the pattern and the habit of God's Word, habits that are built and based on God's Word. The most powerful way we can do that is by growing in a desire and satisfaction of God where it isn't this laborious task that you're quitting everything that you felt brought you all this joy. No, what is happening is that you are finding more and more joy in Christ. And as you find more and more joy in Christ, the result of that is those things that you used to love so much that were sinful, they start to lose their taste. Getting into the book of Colossians, which Brother Marvin just read from, this is Paul writing to the church of Colossae. The letter addresses a strong church that is beginning to be undermined by others coming in and claiming that Jesus was a good start, but there were other practices that needed to be added in in order to truly be securing your salvation. In addition to Paul affirming to the church at Colossae that Jesus himself is salvation, that no other work is required for that salvation, Paul also includes encouragement to exit the sins and vices of this world around them and embrace a greater, richer reality in Christ. And it's the word exit that we're going to zoom in on. Over a week ago, 
a friend of mine was speaking about exits, the sort of exits that we take to escape stress, fear, and hardship. Some people overdrink, he said. Some people overeat. Some people watch too much TV, not only due to an addiction to TV, but some people will tune in and turn up the volume to cloud out their family in the next room. Right? Like some people do that. They turn the volume up really loud. <laughs> Somebody's yelling, they turn the volume up a little bit louder. Right? Some people, and I've heard this before too, some husbands stay at work and stay working to escape their wives. The list of exits can go to the moon and back. His words made me think back to some years ago. I myself am a video game enthusiast, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> I don't play as many games as I like to anymore, just too busy as of late. Um, but I remember years ago hearing games referred to as escapism. And I remember thinking to myself, escapism? I don't like that word, escapism. The person using the term was not using it in a dismissive way, but in a complimentary way, as to say that a certain escapism was enriching to life. Now, I do understand that logically when you enter a game, particularly a video game, your mind in a certain sense escapes and, or exits this world and shifts into whatever fantastical landscape the game has set up. I myself was always more drawn to story-driven games. It was the stories of those games that actually made me think more profoundly about the real world that we live in. And that's the reason I played those types of games. As strange as it might sound, I, it was to think more deeply about reality, which is why the phrase escapism initially rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't think of myself as trying to escape reality when I played a video game. Uh, recently, I reviewed the story of one such story-driven game called Live Alive which I haven't actually played myself, but I watched a review of this game's epic story. There's a place in my heart for epic stories, by the way. So this game is, a, I know it's kind of strange probably me going into the summary of a game in a sermon, but bear with me, it does have a point. So the game is initially split into seven chapters representing seven different time periods from the prehistoric past to the advanced future. You play and complete each chapter with a unique character from that time period. And each chapter ends in a showdown with a final villain. Over the course of the game, it becomes apparent that each final villain is all incarnations of the same demon named Odio. Once you complete all seven chapters, an eighth story chapter is unlocked, the medieval chapter titled King of Demons. The character you play as in this chapter is the Mighty Knight, Orsted. This chapter starts with you competing against your friend Strabo in a battle. It's a battle tournament to win the princess's hand in marriage. Of course, you being the strongest knight in the land beats your friend to win the entire tournament, and now you get to marry the princess. But the night after your victory, Princess Alicia is kidnapped by the Demon King, and so you and your friend Strabo team up with two more warriors and embark on an adventure to rescue the princess. Let me say that everything goes wrong in this mission that you embark on. So one of your men dies of the plague. Your best friend Strabo is crushed by falling rocks. You've made it to the demon's lair, but you can't find the princess. You return home with one survivor in failure. But after returning home, the demon king tricks you into killing the king of your kingdom. The kingdom turns against you, accusing you of being the demon king. 
You are in prison, but soon escape to return alone to the Demon King's mountain in an attempt to save the princess and clear your name. At the Demon King's mountain, you find your best friend, Strabo, who you thought was crushed to death. Is He's very much alive. Out of jealousy, out of jealousy towards you, Strabo sold his soul to become the next Demon King. And so it is he who tricked you into murdering the king of your land. At this shocking revelation, you kill Strabo for his treachery. Then when Princess Alicia emerges, she confesses her love for Strabo, <laughs> your former best friend who is now dead. And she blames you for Strabo's descent into madness. Then like out of Romeo and Juliet, she decides to join her love in death by killing herself. With everyone who is now dead and your good name now permanently in shambles, you are filled with hatred and you sell your soul to become the new demon king. And so your character names himself Odio. And out of revenge, he kills everyone in the land. <laughs> Pretty intense, right? In the final chapter of the game, all the heroes from the previous chapters are summoned together to defeat the Demon King Odio once and for all. And so you play as each character to defeat the Demon King. As the Demon King is fading away into death, he utters his last words, don't forget, anyone can become a king of demons as long as hatred still exists in any world at any time. And so it's those last words that I took interest in. This game, Live Alive, was developed in Japan. The two fellows who wrote the script are Japanese, and I doubt that they are Christians. You never know, but I doubt it. But this is something we see in many stories regardless of the medium, whether it be literature, film, or anything else, that at times, even when the writers of the story are unsaved, their stories can communicate some deep truths. And also, stories can communicate deep lies as well. But in this case, this game, those final words, there was some truth there. Don't forget, anyone can become a king of demons as long as hatred still exists in any world at any time. These words are symbolism for something we see in reality. In reality, we as Christians pointing to scripture would say that as long as sin exists, anyone could be the next Hitler. That because we are born in sin, any person is capable of great evil. That point about any person being capable of evil, it, that's not the main point. Rather, I want to point to how in order to arrive at a richer understanding of reality, sometimes we must exit to enter. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, back to the point about escapism. In a good story, whether it be a movie or a book, you, you get really transported to that place. Whatever that setting is, you get transported there. If the story is good, right? Sometimes you're looking at something that's just awful and it's constantly taking you out of it. Like the characters are just making the dumbest mistakes. And, you know, and by the end of the movie, you don't care who dies because everybody was so dumb. <laughs> right? But if it's a good story, you really get transported to that place and to that time. In a sense, you are exiting your mundane location for the moment into another place. And if in the course of that story, there's some real truth being illuminated that applies to our real world, you might find yourself entering into a richer understanding of reality. In that sense, you exit to enter. You exit your own cares for a moment of time and enter into a greater truth. Can anyone think of a movie, a book, a show 
a radio interview, some story, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, that you experienced that made you think about reality in a different way, even a richer way? You know, a favorite movie, just something you listened to and you just thought about reality in a slightly different way, in a way that you felt was richer than before you experienced that story or that interview or that testimony. So before we get to our main text in Colossians 3, we're going to do a comparison study between the account Pastor David preached about last week and the account of the Samaritan woman at the well. Both accounts involve Jesus. So in John chapter 6, Jesus performs a miracle. He multiplies five bread loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men. Those people are amazed and seek him out for more food. Jesus says, you're here for food, not the truly important thing. John 6 and 35, and it says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 36, But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. So by this point, the Jewish crowd is murmuring, going, Is this not the son of Joseph? Right? Verse 51, I'm skipping way down. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. So not only is he talking about eating my flesh, yeah, he's talking about now you drink my blood. So they're having a hard time wrapping their head around, what are you talking about, eat your flesh? He's like, not only that, you need to drink my blood too. <laughs> it's like he's like rubbing the salt in, in the wound kind of, right? Skipping down to verse 63, he says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So Jesus says to them that the words that I'm speaking are spirit. You know, not literal, the words that I speak are spirit. He tells them. Verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Many of the disciples and the crowds, they didn't get it. Even after Jesus plainly states that the words he's speaking are spiritual in nature, they didn't get it. That Jesus was offering eternal life. They couldn't see, they couldn't get past their stomachs being fed, basically. They couldn't see past that. And they were there to be fed physically, and they couldn't see past it. Now let's compare the reaction of this crowd in John chapter 6 with the reaction of the Samaritan woman at the well when she interacted with Jesus earlier in chapter 4. So if you want to turn to John chapter 4, and we'll be starting at verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey, set thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So he's basically saying, if you knew who you were speaking to, that you were speaking to the Christ, 
and he hasn't quite revealed it yet. Going to verse 11, it says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? So she's like, you didn't come here with anything to even pull a water up with. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> living water. And verse 12 says, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Talking about this physical water of the well. You'll drink of it, and you'll thirst again. 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus said that the water that he provides is one that is inexhaustive and creates life in a person and gives everlasting life. So the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. The woman's like, this water sounds incredible. Give me some of that. Uh, She's still not quite getting it. Like the crowds, they weren't quite getting it. At this point, she's not quite getting it either. And she's sort of incredulous, like, you know, what are you talking about? Sounds good, so let me see it. So 16 says, Jesus saith unto her, go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. So Jesus just read her. He's like, go get your husband. And then She's like, I have no husband. Jesus is like, mm-hmm, I know. And then verse 18 says, For thou hast had five husbands, this is Jesus speaking, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidest thou truly. And so Jesus goes on to explain her life. You have had five husbands, and the person you're with now is not your husband. Ooh. <laughs> 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And for sake of time, I'll drop down to verse 25. And says, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. She knows of the coming Messiah. This is what she says to Jesus. And then Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. I am that Christ is basically what Jesus is saying. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? So what's different here between her response and the response of the crowd in John chapter 6? In both instances, Jesus does something miraculous. Here he reveals to know that she has five husbands. In John chapter 6, his miracle was the splitting of the bread and fish to feed 5,000 men. In this chapter, he presents an outrageous claim that he can provide a water that would cause a person to never thirst and to have eternal life. In chapter 6, he presents a similar claim in addition to the outrageous claim that the Jews must eat of his flesh to have everlasting life. So why does the crowd turn away in John chapter 6? But here in John chapter 4, this woman gets it that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah. And not only her, she grabs crowds of people, the Samaritan woman, she grabs crowds of people and they come and believe Jesus too. So why does, in one circumstance, the people believe? I mean, even though Jesus is saying what sounds like some outrageous things, they believe, but in another instance, they don't believe. Like, what is going on here? Uh, We were talking about this just last Wednesday, actually, 
uh, at our Bible study at church. So why didn't Jesus just speak in plain language? That was the question on Wednesday. And we explored that question. Why didn't he just skip the metaphors and say, I am the Messiah? So in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13, Jesus has just finished a parable. So what are parables? They are short stories that teach heavenly truths, basically. The disciples ask Jesus why he talks so often in parables. And keep in mind, these parables seem like riddles to much of his audience. Like Jesus speaking of himself as bread and water, it's like a riddle. I'm start at 10 of Matthew 13. And this is where he says, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speaketh thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. 13, it says, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. So in other words, Christ was intentional about speaking in these illustrations that would be difficult for so many people to understand. He did it on purpose. It created an image picture that invited those people who were truly open to understanding. They would have to put their mind to work and exit their preconceived notions and enter into the illustration that Jesus was painting. At the same time, to those who were not open, who were not ready, even those who were enemies of God, the illustrations and stories would obscure the mysteries of God's kingdom, which also created time for Jesus' work of providing eternal life through the cross. So again, to reiterate what I'm saying, for those who God was working through, when Jesus told these parables, it would cause them to, for a second, through the drawing of God, sort of exit their preconceived notions of what they might imagine the common Messiah, the coming king to be, and then enter into the illustration that Jesus was painting in their brain, right? And to uncover the truth that he was really communicating. But at the same time, those who were not ready, even those who were enemies of God, those illustrations would sort of hide the fullness of the truth that Jesus was speaking. And that was intentional too. Why? Well, let's get into it. What if Jesus had come to humanity glowing and floating? Would anyone have crucified him? Would he have paid for our sins on that cross? Jesus came as a regular person without the air of grand royalty, though he was the grandest of royalty. He was the coming kingdom that had been prophesied to come, and he stood right in front of the crowds of people who couldn't see it. But through his stories, those who God the Father was working on would begin to grasp the truth of what was being taught. They would, for that moment, exit whatever distractions filled their life and enter into a greater understanding of the reality staring them in the face. The Samaritan woman at the well, she got it. The crowds and even many of the disciples in John 6, they couldn't exit the distraction of their stomachs in order to enter into the greater truth of reality. But a few in John 6 did. A few in John 6 did get it. In verse 67, when Jesus asked the 12 disciples if they would leave him just like the other disciples, in verse 68 and 69, it says, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, as we read before. And then verse 69, it says, And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. So they got it, right? Not everybody did. And the disciples at that time, they still didn't fully understand everything that was unfolding, but they got enough 
to know that we're sticking with Jesus. So far, what has been described in an exiting of the mind from the present environment with its stress and an entering into a greater understanding of reality, that's what, that's what we've talked about. Now I want to expand on that by turning to our main text in Colossians 3. Again, the theme of Colossians is that the work of Christ has saved them all, and for us today, the work of Christ has saved us all from hell. Not these additional works that other people coming into the church are telling them to do in order to stay saved from hell. Not these extra practices. God paid it all. So Paul encourages the church at Colossae in verse 1. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. For ye are dead draws on the imagery of baptism, which is dying to the old man of sin and rising up anew in Christ. Again, that image that is painted, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ, it parallels the dying to that old person and raising up anew in Christ. And then verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him. He's saying that one day when he returns, when Christ returns in glory, the church will share in that glory. We will share in that glory. In this particular instance, he's speaking to the church at Colossae, but this is a message for all of us as well. Verse 5, it says, mortify therefore your members. So that language there, mortify therefore your members. Therefore, it means that because of you know, what was just said in the previous verse, that we are hid in Christ, uh, that we will share in his glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Mortifying means to put to death. So it's saying put to death that nature within you that reaches towards these things. And it's going to list it off right now. It says, which are upon the earth, fornication, which is sexual immorality, uncleanness, inordinate affection, which is lust, evil concupiscence, which means evil desire, and covetousness, which is greed for other people's possessions. Not that you see somebody with a nice car and you think, oh, I would like a nice car too. No, that's not covetousness. Covetousness is, I want their car, you know, and I might just take it if I get the opportunity. That's what, co- that's what covetousness is. There was lottery. Her car is nice. So Paul says all these things are idolatry, and that's an interesting thing there. He calls all these things, this long list of things that we just read, Inordinate affection, uncleanness, evil concupiscence, which is evil desire, uh, grief for other people's possessions. He says this is idolatry. What is idolatry? Let me ask that question. What is idolatry? So we would relate idolatry to serving some idol or other God beyond the one true God. But here Paul calls all these vices listed out as idolatry. That's interesting. If these are idolatry, what does it mean we're serving? If the list of sins and vices that we just read through is idolatry, what does it mean that we're serving? Ourselves. Ourselves, we're serving ourselves. We are worshiping ourselves. This is why Paul calls it idolatry. So if we participate in these things, we're serving ourselves in the place of God. So this takes us back to the topic of exits. As I started the message, I spoke about how my friend's thoughts on exits inspired this message today. He talked about how we all can take many exits, um, and many exits out of stress and fear. 
The exit could be overeating, lighting up some illegal substances, watching too much TV just to drown out other people in the household. It could be profane music that appeals to materialistic fantasies and lustful desires. Working all the time to escape your wife, the list is endless. These are exits that enter us into a place of darkness, not the fullness of life promised in Christ. For Christians, the exits we take can drive us into rebellion against God. So if we're taking these sorts of exits as people who are actually in Christ and saved, it can drive us into rebellion against God because we are taking these things over Christ. If we're stressed out, this is the exit that we're taking. Instead of God, we're going to these other things. These are evils which people exhibit, which in turn makes the lives of other people more difficult. In other words, acting out on immorality, evil desire, all this idolatry leads to chaos and stress, which leads to people trying to exit that chaos and stress. It's sort of a circular effect, right? When we take these exits, when we resort to these things that are contrary to God in order to escape stress, right? This creates sort of a cycle that affects everybody. Because when we take these things out, it creates chaos. And then that chaos in return is something that other people seek to escape as well. So we find ourselves in this pattern of trying to escape each other, basically, trying to exit each other, <laughs> you know, and it's, it becomes a cycle. And so and when we reach for an exit that is empty of God, we enter into a dark, dangerous alleyway. Of the evils listed in verse 5, Paul continues in verse 6. He says, For which things of sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Children of disobedience refers to those who have not come to know and follow God. So all those things in verse 5, uh, which equates to idolatry, are the very things that bring the wrath of God. These evils that come when man serves himself in place of God, and when these things are used as exits or escapes from fear or anger or stress, human beings enter into greater self-centeredness and into God's wrath as well. When we exit into sin, we exit into greater self-centeredness, worshiping ourselves, that idolatry that Paul calls it, and we also exit into the anger of God. So when there is fear, when there is anger, when there is stress, what exit should we take? The exit we take is God. But how do we do that? So this is the how do we do that section of the message. For starters, let's go back to verse 2. It says, set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. Set your affections where? On things above and not what? Not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. That's what verse 3 of Colossians say. So saying not only should we not set affections on things on the earth, but you shouldn't because if you are in Christ, it means that you have died to the old sinful man and become a new creature whose life is now in the hands of Christ. If we set our affections on things above, where can we learn about those things above? What do you think we can learn about the things above if we're setting our affections there? That's right. So it brings us to point A, read the Bible. If we've not been informed on things above, then when someone says to set your affection on things above, what does that even mean? It's a vague concept to me at that point. So it's quite vital to learn from the Word of God about the things above. Otherwise, the bigness of God can be so cloudy to us that we give up on trying to grasp it and we turn to some other exit from our stress. Let's not turn to some cheap alternative. So 
In the first portion of Colossians 3 and 16, it reads, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Again, where do we get the word of Christ from? The Bible, the word of God. Then Colossians 3 and 16 continues. It says, teaching and admonishing one another. Does anyone know what admonishing means? Admonishing means warning, right? So it's saying, obviously it doesn't mean warning as in threatening, like I'm warning you not to cross me. It's saying we are helping each other spiritually course correct and avoid spiritual pitfalls. If we're teaching and warning one another, it means we have to be in touch with one another in proximity with one another. And where might such a place be where we can be in close proximity with one another? Church, right? So what can help us set our affectional things above? Be coming to church, being in fellowship with one another. So I very much invite those who can come out to Wednesday to come out. Uh, Wednesday night, it'll be Wednesday day pretty soon because of the daylight save spring forward. Uh, but I very much invite you out. Uh, definitely is of great importance that you come on Sundays. So thank you all for being here. I do appreciate that. Sunday definitely can be more one directional. The pastor preaching and you just sort of receiving. Uh, but on Wednesday, we really, it really does allow for time to have conversations about God, to have a, like a real back and forth. And in that back and forth, I mean, it's so helpful. We, we learn about each other and we get deeper insights about ourselves as well. You know, not just each other, but our, about ourselves. And ideas about how we should live for God, sometimes warnings to one another, you know, as to how to avoid danger, how to get out of danger, that danger might be coming in some way. There really are revelations about ourselves and the directions that we should take in life that only happen over the course of conversation, where we bounce thoughts and ideas back and forth between one another. And the whole thing becomes all the more powerful when Christ is the center of that conversation. It grows our affection towards Christ and the things above. And by no means should our proximity be bound to the physical walls of the church. We are a spiritual family. So close families should do things outside of home. And so I know that members in the church have had Bible studies over the phone when things prevented people from being together in the same space. Uh, we've had meals together outside the church walls. A lot of things. Let's continue to reach out to each other, both inside and outside the church, right? And so in this way, we become an exit to one another to enter into greater understanding about Christ. You understand? We become each other's exits, Right? entrances into greater truth and understanding about God and the direction that we should take in life. And here's a detail, still from verse 16, that I don't want to skip. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This refers to a variety of song types used in Christian worship. So the verse here doesn't simply say to teach and admonish one another. It also says to do so in song. Who's ready for a singing conversation? It's basically saying we are encouraging each other, but we're doing that through the vehicle of song. All right, so I thought that, that was interesting. So yeah, who's ready for me to serenade them? We see here that song is used as a tool for communicating truth, and in this verse we see it both as a tool for communicating truth and helping one another at the same time. And while I'm on this verse, I'll allow it to transition us to the next and final point, that is, 
entertainment. Entertainment used properly can grow our affection for God and things above. Entertainment is a natural go-to exit when we want to unwind from hardship and stress. We see here already that there's a place for God-glorifying music. When we are evaluating our choice of entertainment, whether it be music or film or television, sports, or any great number of entertainment options, one place we can compare those options with is verse 5 of Colossians 3. Does my entertainment choice glorify and celebrate, as we read in verse 5, does it glorify and celebrate fornication, uncleanness, evil desire, greed for others' possessions, uh, which is idolatry? In verse 8, we have more things to add. So in verse 8, there's some additional vices, some additional bad things. Does our entertainment choices glorify those things in verse 8, which is anger? Does our choices celebrate anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language? If so, we are instructed at the beginning of verse 5 to put to death that part of us which reaches after those things. Now, I don't believe that this means we are only ever to watch and participate in or listen to something that is only explicitly Christian. I don't think that's what it's saying, but we are definitely given the principles and criteria in God's word by which to evaluate the entertainment choices we engage with. In terms of content that has really grown my affection personally for Christ, and things above, there's a lot of great video content out there on platforms like YouTube that you can watch for free. I love videos on the topic of intelligent design. It's about how we see engineering and design all throughout nature. It grows my awe of God. There's a lot of wonderful content that answers difficult questions about scripture. There's great music out there. It might be challenging to find, but it's out there. And we've already talked about the power of story. And so, I'll return to the example of that game. And that game, which I spoke of from earlier, Live Alive, was the name. When reading those last dying words of the final villain, don't forget anyone can become a king of demons as long as hatred still exists in any world at any time. Of the potentially thousands of people who played that game, who exited their room for this virtual game world, might those last words in this piece had caused them to enter into more rich thinking about reality. Those last words that anybody can become the demon king, would, have, would that have caused many kids, uh, and this game was a long time ago, it might be thousands of people, and you talk about young kids in particular who are still sort of developing in the person that they are. You know, I wonder if they read those words, and, and might it have enriched them in a, in a way they exited into this game world, but there's this message at the end that they enter into a, a deeper thinking about reality, a deeper thinking about truth. For us, for those of us who know Christ, we should already realize that there is a reality far richer than the troubles that stress us from day to day, a grander reality that can many times be hard for us to see. Hebrews 11 and 3 states, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear, that things that were made were not created by things which do appear. In other words, the invisible God created this universe. The physical universe is held together by God's spiritual architecture. And even on a physical level, the bigger our microscopes can magnify, the more we find previously invisible things as part of the clockwork of this world. That germs existed was once laughable long ago, for example. How do we make this invisible God more visible to us in order to set our affections on him? We examine three things. 
hey, read the Bible. It's hard to locate things we have no information on. The more we learn of God, the more he comes into view. B, coming to church, being in fellowship with one another, we uplift each other and teach each other. Together we can see God at work in each other's life and encourage each other to continue in Christ. C, entertainment used properly can grow our affection for God and things above. If we are careful about what we allow into our brain, we can find material that helps put our mind in awe of God. If we allow our minds to exit petty physical things of this world for a moment and focus on our spiritual God, we can enter a fuller, richer, more profound reality. In that sense, you exit to enter. And the more we enter into God, the more sin loses its appeal. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.